This episode of Fresh Ed is sponsored by the Comparative and International Education Society. On October 26th and 27th, the Society's second symposium will take place at George Mason University, where the theme will be Interrogating and Innovating Comparative and International Education Research. Today's guest on Fresh Ed will be a speaker at the symposium. If you would like to join us just outside Washington, D.C. this fall, you can find more details at freshedpodcast.com backslash 2017 symposium. Again, that is freshedpodcast.com backslash 2017 symposium. Enjoy the podcast and hope to see you at the symposium in October. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. This is the last episode in our four-part series leading up to the CIES 2017 Symposium. In the past three episodes, we have talked about decolonizing knowledge and innovating comparative and international education research, primarily from within the USA. But what does decolonization of knowledge look like in other countries? Today, we focus on Pakistan. My guest is Shanila Kujamulji. She researches and writes about the interplay of gender, race, religion, and power in international contexts. In the May 2017 supplement of the Comparative Education Review, she wrote an article on teacher professional development in Pakistan. So in my article, I also talk about uh, religious ways of knowing, Muslim ways of knowing, um, have been either marked as irrelevant or they have been moved into after-school programs or the family's responsible for your moral instruction, right? So schools don't explicitly take ownership of that, even though, of course, um, schools are very much part of that project, right? Shanila has also learned to navigate the difficult and at times imperial terrain of international education development. The most difficult part was um, the, the early pushback um, where I tried to decenter myself um, and tried to create um, interactive educational sessions where the teachers might be leading components of the workshops themselves. Shanila Kujamulji is currently a visiting scholar at the Alice Paul Center for Research on Gender, Sexuality, and Women at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Forging the Ideal Educated Girl which will be published by the University of California Press in June 2018. Shanila Kujamulji, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me. So in 2015, you were in Pakistan to conduct a three-day workshop on teaching with teachers. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about this experience? Sure. Um, To um, answer this question, um, I have to provide a little bit of context around how this project emerged. Um, So I'm originally from southern Pakistan, and I have worked with local organizations there for the past several years on issues related to educational development. Um, A couple of years ago, before um, this teaching workshop happened, um, I obtained a grant to do a human rights education camp for adolescent girls in the community where I actually grew up. Um, The camp went really well. Um, There was zero attrition. We used materials in the Urdu language in order to contextualize the learning. Um, We also had funding for the following year. 
However, after returning to the U.S., um, I started to reflect on the camp as a pedagogical project, um, particularly the kinds of subjects that it imagined and produced. Um, and so I started reflecting on questions around theorization of the body, the human empowerment, what constitutes a good life, all of this in the context of the human rights discourse. Um, I also um, interrogated some of the assumptions regarding Muslims that are often implicit in the rights discourse as it relates to Pakistan. And so this experience transformed me into actually thinking about how um, concepts um, that we deploy in our education projects or bodies of knowledge, human rights in this case, um, they do not emerge in a vacuum. Um, they actually have a history and they have emerged in particular sociopolitical and geographical conditions. And so since then, some of the key questions that have animated my work, um, they have been in relation to the politics of knowledge. So what ideas do we center in our educational projects? What constitutes knowledge? Whose knowledges do we see as worthy of transmission? Whose knowledges are left out and what are the consequences of that? Um, and so the next time when I was invited by the same community, um, I was really mindful of these politics of knowledge. Um, and the next project was actually this set of professional development um, workshops for teachers from community-based schools from across local districts. And so how did you approach this workshop? What, mm -hmm. you know, tangibly, what, what did you actually do that showed you were cognizant of these um, politics of knowledge? So um, a CBS or a community-based school um, is actually a type of school that is run by the community. So everything from infrastructure to teachers' salaries and training, those are often taken care uh, of by a board, which is often composed of volunteers that are drawn from the local community. Um, these schools have emerged um, in many parts of Pakistan um, because um, either the government school um, is not providing quality education uh, or teachers are absent there, um, and so uh, or private schools are really um, the fees are really high, and so community-based schools have emerged as a model to provide educational access, uh, particularly in poor communities. So you'll also observe a lot of transnational organizations such as USAID, for example, they have also set up such schools, but then they leave the schools to their own devices when their period of engagement ends. And so given how um, poor these communities are, where these schools are, many CBS schools are underfunded. And um, this often also means they don't have funds to train their teachers. And so I was invited by a civil society organization um, that tries to address the needs of some such community-based schools in the local area. Um, they approached me um, and wanted me to train teachers in Jadid, or that's the Urdu term for modern, um, and new, um, which is naive, teaching techniques. And so um, I have no doubt that because of my education and teaching in the U.S., I was seen as affording um, these insights, which might be modern, um, and this desire for Western knowledges or Westward orientation, um, in fact, is a consequence of an active erasure of non-Eurocentric knowledges um, in these parts of the world, right? So these are intricately linked with processes of colonization and imperialism. And so when I was invited, I um, saw this as an opportunity to interrogate the very um, premise that educators from the West have superior knowledges, and they're the ones who are supposed to come in and impart this unilaterally to local teachers. Um, and so 
my uh, my hope was to figure out with the teachers a few techniques uh, that might center the teachers as knowledge producers. Um, I also tried to curate um, some examples of how the teachers could re-engage with the local environment um, and actually learn about the, the present moment of coloniality as well. So those were the broader um, objectives of the camp. And what did you what did you learn? I mean, you know how how easy is it to navigate this politics of knowledge where you are assumed by the organization to to hold this modern knowledge that you can instill on you know mm -hmm. people who have non-modern ways of thinking or traditional ways of thinking um, but you're also trying to basically not follow that 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 paradigm you are trying to recognize the local histories and the the, the value of local knowledge so that must have been a very tricky position to navigate as you went through this workshop. Right. Um, so I think the the most difficult part was um, the, the early pushback um, where I tried to decenter myself um, and tried to create um, interactive educational sessions where the teachers might be leading components of the workshops themselves. Uh, during the workshop, there was lots of group discussions. Teachers were actually trying to address each other's issues rather than um, looking to me um, for answers. And so in creating some of those moments, um, I did receive a little bit of pushback because the assumption was that I would be um, didactic and instruct on the issues that were key. Um, for that community or what I was advised to do. Um, and so I think, but, but because of my long-term engagement with this particular community, um, this particular organization, um, I was able to convince, I, and I also have to be honest, I had much more latitude than somebody else would have had because of this prior relationship. And so I think that's another um that's another key when we think about sustainability. Um, I have to also be cognizant of the fact that this sort of um, affordance was provided to me because of my background in this community. Um, and so um, there was uh, there was pushback, but then I was able to convince folks that um, this might be a way for us to create a more sustainable structure um, for these community-based teachers. Um, the other, I think, the other underlying logic um, that must have informed um, uh, the organization is also um, the fact that these teachers actually live fairly far away um, and um, local community-run faith-based organizations are also always struggling for resources. Um, and so if, if there is a possibility to create communities of empowerment that actually might um, exist independently of uh, a center um, that might, that probably is also welcomed by um, these organizations as well because they're actually trying to um, create the sort of support and don't have to be the people who are actually providing all of these services, right? So to move away from the service delivery model. So I think that may have also informed um, their decision to let me do this workshop. So what did you actually say to some of these community members to convince them? So I think initially, um, I, I frankly, it wasn't beyond um, just talking about how I would structure the day. So this workshop was supposed to be three to four days. 
um, and I provided the um, the agenda for the first day. Um, and then by the end of the day, they actually saw, because the organizers actually attended the workshops themselves, they were also educators. Um, and so we did um, this technique of the critical friends community, where um, we kind of modified the model that we that might be used here in at least Western context to create communities that might come around interest or location, et cetera. And then the teachers actually pitched a problem and the problem was solved by other teachers. Um, and then we had presentations at the end. And so just the performance of it all um, was convincing enough to let us do some of the work that we were trying to do, including critiquing um, some of the structures, um, state structures, local structures, the patriarchal family, et cetera, that also inhibit teachers' access. And I think a lot of these learnings, um, a lot of these critiques are part of our everyday vocabulary. We talk about them. Um, I think the only different thing might have just been to do it in a forum with like 70 people. Um, so, so I don't think that this is new. I think when uh, the oppressed actually know often about their oppression and they actually understand some of the systems and policies um, that marginalize them. So I don't think this is knew it was just a space for them to come together and talk about it in a larger setting. So what sort of um, forces and uh, of oppression were you able to discuss in this forum using these, um, what did you call it, critical friends community or, or mm-hmm. what I guess in the U.S. is called the learning community model? Right. So what, you know, what sort of forms of, impre- of oppression were you able to draw out of this group and discuss and reflect on? So one of the things that we talked about was uh, hierarchies of knowledges. Um, So we wanted, if you think about knowledges as ecologies, and we're talking about how ideas are related to each other um, and how um, there are hierarchies of these um, these ideas. And so one of the things that actually the students came up with was um, a critique of some of the modules on religion that uh, that marginalized minority interpretations of Islam. And so um, in my article um, for for this symposium, um, I actually have a photograph of a presentation that was actually given by some of the teachers towards the end where they try to rewrite the particular module, um, paying attention to the ways in which they might actually think of Islam as composed of communities of interpretations um, and what might their teaching look like. I think there were sixth or seventh grade teachers um, and like how they would actually teach it if they were to revise the module. And so they actually spend that entire day um, thinking about this sort of hierarchy, thinking about how particular knowledges are centered um, in curriculum and then trying to enact a sort of revision within their small community of friends um, to create a new uh, new module. So do you, do you think in, um, in Pakistan context, a lot of the knowledge structures that you said are hierarchical, does this come from the colonial experience in the country? So I think some of it really does, because if you think about the institution of mass schooling, um, if you look at the the past century, it has become the dominant space of learning. Um, uh, In the context of Muslim South Asia, this institution um, was developed by the British colonizers. Of course, um, this meant that the learning communities and local institutions of learning had to emulate um, some of the models, such as the, the, the fact that there has to be a curriculum, the fact that people have to be enrolled in classes according to your biological age. Um, 
all of those, a certification, for example, all of these different um, models um, work across um, each other. And so in that way, um, the institution of school actually does represent um, a, uh, it is, it has roots in British colonial interventions in the missionary and the English schools that were set up. But then, of course, this, the state took ownership, right, in the when the Pakistan was established in 1947, it was the, the state's responsibility to provide access to education. And so you have this massive effort for teacher training and also building um, school infrastructure. Um, but what actually has happened is um, uh, the, the sort of fragmentation of learning. So you learn particular kinds of things in schools, which are supposed to um, make you eligible for particular kinds of jobs. Um, and then other forms of learning so in my article, I also talk about uh, religious ways of knowing, Muslim ways of knowing. Um, and so one of the critiques, and I talk about that actually in my book a lot more, um, about how religious ways of knowing um, have been either marked as irrelevant or they have been moved into after-school programs or the family is responsible for your moral instruction, right? So schools don't explicitly take ownership of that, even though, of course, um, schools are very much part of that project, right? And so I think if we were to think about it from the perspective of, um, of the particular model of schooling, then yes, we can trace it to British colonial um, influence. But then I think we have to move into thinking about um, new institutions, um, elite institutions, including the state and the institution of family and how those institutions have reinscribed particular kinds of learning. Where do they assert their power in order to shape the young child. Um, and so this contestation, I feel, in the context of Pakistan continues um, even today. There is lots of debate on curriculum in Pakistan. Uh, all sorts of different entities are trying to assert um, their visions for what an ideal child is, what an ideal girl is. Um, the state is part of it. Um, the institution of the family is part of it. The religious ulama are part of it. And so this, can, this is... Uh, it, it remains a very dense and um, contested conversation. Right. So the, you know, the knowledge politics now include, or, you know, the state and the family. Does it also include, in your opinion, these, you know, the um, civil society organizations or the community-based schooling organizations or just more broadly, you know, educational development, which is, you know, including um, people from around the world who are coming into poor communities to help them, you know, better themselves or their education systems in particular ways and kind of coming in with a very um, prescribed notion of what good is. Um, does that also, mm -hmm. is this included in the new institutions um, that are colonizing knowledge in a way? Yeah, I would say so, yes, because um, as I had mentioned earlier, the first thing I did as a young master's student who wanted to do something good was to apply for a grant on human rights education, which, by the way, if you talk about girls um, and human rights, there's a lot of money in the in the U.S. here, particularly if you say that you're going to Pakistan. And so it wasn't really hard for me to get the grants. Um, it also, I mean, there, was an, there are entire programs for human rights education at universities, right? So there is a cadre of practitioners and experts that are produced who are expected to take this knowledge and go in the world, right? So the institution itself is complicit 
in um, in creating these sorts of channels um, for transferring for transmitting knowledges about a particular um, regimes, such as the human rights regime. And so I think I would I would I would say that even I was complicit in terms of applying for that grant and then trying to um, use this without actually reflecting on some of the underlying assumptions um, to go in another part of the world um, and to implement some of these projects. Um, so I think what is What's critical um, then, and to answer your question, um, yes, there is. Um, there are lots of organizations, there are lots of practitioners, well-meaning, um, who who do um, into educational development work. Um, but we are, um, we also actually have to think about the politics of the work that we are doing um, to actually think about the ways in which we might be reinscribing some of the global norms. Um, in addition, the state, for example, the MDGs, SDGs, for example, um, the ways in which transnational agendas are set up is also that also influences the priorities of the state, right? So if girls' enrollment is the biggest thing, then you will see that even the Pakistani state uh, emphasizes that. You'll have a lot of funding for that, so transnational aid workers, practitioners will focus on that. Even local organizations will try to move their agendas because everyone needs the funding, right? Um, so so I think from that perspective, um, even those norm-setting organizations um, are complicit in in how education unfolds in local context. I'll tell you something interesting. I was in Pakistan this summer, and um, so these days, as you can imagine, um, countering violent extremism is the big funding stream, right? Um, and so I was speaking with a friend of mine, and um, she does work in a completely different um, space. Um, she works with a, uh, a group of um, what might be constituted as risk kids and she works on art etc um, and since this is the only big stream of money um, coming in foreign stream of money a lot of um, a lot of people are just reshaping what they're doing to say we're doing CVE work because that's where the money is and so I think there's also um, now I don't know um, if people continue to do that which we're which they were doing originally, um, or but I'm sure this sort of knowledge regime puts pressure on the ways in which we think about um, what we're doing in local settings as well, right? So how do you, I mean, so on the one hand, you're saying um, that this education development industry is complicit in, you know, limiting knowledge or colonizing knowledge. And of course, the funding structures are a big part of how that, that works. And on the other hand, you're saying that you are trying to work through this education development industry to decolonize knowledge with the workshop being a good example. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just seems like it's a really difficult uh, environment to navigate um, because you must reflect on yourself and think, you know, I am complicit in, in some of these practices mm-hmm. um, that I'm critiquing at the same time. So, you know, I just wonder, how do you do it? How do you you know, recognize your own positionality as being problematic at points, um, mm-hmm. but continuing to work through this industry that you find so problematic? So um, so that's an excellent question. Um, there is a professor at Columbia, Hamid Dabashi, and um, I had this conversation with him once, um, and he, he said something really interesting that interesting that I've kind of taken to heart. So at that point, I was writing my um, I was writing an article on human rights um, and just actually um, thinking about the portrayal of Muslims within the um, 
Muslims in the human rights imaginary, particularly in Western media, and how uh, Muslim men in particular are featured in that discourse. Um, and then um, I was also um, doing, I, I was looking at some issues at that point that were happening in Pakistan, in which I saw that the language of women's rights um, was perhaps the most productive language for a local group to advance some of the things that they wanted. And so one of the things that the Bashi um, talked, I mean, he, he, we had this conversation and he um, shared that it's that we as scholars and practitioners, we move about in different circles within different structures. Um, and it's okay for us to critique um, a human rights discourse, but also be willing to use it strategically when it can actually advance the well-being of the women, the people that we're actually concerned with. And so I'm, I'm right now, I'm very comfortable with um, writing an academic paper on human rights discourse aimed at a particular academic audience or even writing in Western media discourses, but then go and stand on the streets of Karachi or Islamabad or Hyderabad and do a protest for the rights of a woman who, um, who will, um, for whom this protest actually strategically might um, create some space. And so I think um, we have to be able to work within the structures. Um, and I think it's possible to do both. At least that's what I think. Yeah, so they can be contradictory, but you can kind of hold that contradiction in your hand. Yeah, and we have to strategically deploy the discourses and move around in these spaces. Now, do you ever think that some of these ideas that you are working to decolonize knowledge would ever be taken up by you know, some of the big players, some of the big institutions in the development industry, like the World Bank or, I mean, even USAID for that matter. I mean, is this is this a possibility or is it just going to have to be individuals strategically working within those structures to kind of push for um, slightly alternative notions of what knowledge is or could be? Hmm. So I so one of the things I think is that if they're taken up by these transnational, so I think at the core of some of the critique um, is a, a critique of networks of privilege. It's uh, a critique of the ways in which unequal relationships of power continue through um, through educational institutions, through um, through other other sorts of ventures, like through circulation of capital, etc. So I think at the end of the day, um, it calls for redistribution and a disruption of status quo, which I don't um, know. Um, I, I don't know if that is something that these organizations are in the business for, right? So I think that's not what they're setting out to do, um, which is fine. So I think what I, um, what I feel is that there is, what I'm actually concerned about is that some of the times the the terminologies or the critiques that scholars come up with, they are assimilated um, by large organizations, um, and then um, they are siloed into a program. Um, so you have a lot of indigenous um, Pro, like the World Bank, for example, has a bunch of indigenous programs focusing on um, indigenous knowledges of farmers, for example, right? So I think there are ways in which these um, critiques can be co-opted and then um, their political edge um, gets blunt, right? So I think um, that's the that's the thing that I'm most concerned about, that um, these projects can become, the ideas can become a buzzword, um, they can be one program or two within a portfolio, but then not an approach that actually informs the entire uh, development regime that we're thinking about. So I think if, from that perspective, then um, it might be, 
uh, we might be safe to say that for these sorts of projects, you either need to have authorizing environments like I had, this particular civil society organization that has similar commitments, uh, who may have been nervous earlier, but then actually provided the space to um, do something innovative um, in relation to teacher ed in the ways in which conceptualized there, or you need to just have educators who um, create these everyday disruptions within these networks. So those are some other ways I think this might continue. Yeah. So, I mean, to go back to the, the workshop that you organized, do, I mean, I, I know the word success might not be the most appropriate, but, you know, did you, were you able to be successful in the, the kind of intent that you had going in? I mean, you know, have you been back to that community since doing the workshop and, and have you seen anything change? So, um, so I think the first thing um, and my personal object objective was to encourage a discussion around the present moment of coloniality, right? So I wanted for us to be able to understand um, and to develop an understanding of colonialism that moves beyond the classic colonization and to include some of the analysis to understand how we continue to exist in colonial situations. And so this meant being able to recognize and, and talk about the, the contemporary systems of exploitation and domination. So I think one, so that was my key, um, at least for the first day, that was my uh, main agenda for us to be able to talk about. Um, and I would, I would say I was pleased um, that we, we did create a community where where participants were able to speak about some of the ways in which um, not only within st school structures, but outside of it too, within their different communities of belonging. Some people talked about uh, the institution of the family. Some people talk about rel within religious communities. Others talked about the nation state. So depending on wherever any person's investment was, um, there was a, a sort of robust sort of discussion on that topic. And so I would say that um, that that may be constituted as a success in quotes, um, but um, I also um, and I think that the communities of friends might also um, have may have been in a, a sort of project that might continue because we very intentionally created these communities of people who could actually meet um, because the teachers were coming from all over um, the district. Um, so we had to make sure that people who lived in the same area or who were who had some sort of uh, way of seeing each other once a month were paired together. And so that's another thing that may have continued, but I I have no way of knowing um, if they are meeting. Um, I think that's something I also have to think about in terms of how do you um, stay in touch um, with these groups. I think it would be great to do this sort of workshop um, every, every year um, to at least be able to bring people together again and to build on some of the things that we talked about earlier. Um, but as I said, this is a voluntary organization. I was a volunteer. Um, so I think that often means that... Um, we we are dependent on our own on our own financial resources. Um, the food, for example, was donated by a, a local um, well-wisher. So I think a lot of this has to it's it's done by volunteers, and so I think all of those pieces have to come together to create um, these projects for particularly people who are from far-flung poor communities, like having um, somebody donate money for the buses, for example. So all of this, um, like these are small things, but um, they can it can mean a difference between actually create a workshop again or not. So I think sustainability from that perspective is um, 
an issue. But I think um, there are there are many organizations in Pakistan um, who are invested in this type of work. Um, and so if formalized, I wouldn't be surprised that there might be additional ways of doing this. And so let me ask you about this upcoming symposium. I mean, what, what are you excited uh, about going into the, the two-day conference or two-day symposium? Um, so I am, uh, so first of all, meeting my friends. And so that, that's the best thing about these conferences. I have to be honest about it. Um, and so I think um, the other thing also is to just, um, I think there is a focus on uh, methods um, this time, thinking about uh, comparative international education. So I think that's um, an interesting uh, space where you're only thinking about the ways in which we're doing um, this type of work. Um, and then, of course, um, having these case studies which showcase some of these ideas. Um, even though I'm talking about this paper, um, I've been uh, for the past year actually writing um, my, my book on the figure of the Muslim girl, the educated girl, and it's uh, genealogy. And so I've been particularly concerned in thinking about how can we combine historical archival material with uh, with case study methodologies to actually create these methods of thinking about education that have um, that have this sort of long term view, but are also then grounded in local communities. Um, and so I think it would be nice for me to actually be able to talk to people about that, too. So I'm looking forward to those conversations. And when you do publish your book, please come back on Fresh Ed and uh, tell us all about it. Yes, it's in June 2018. So. Okay, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Shanila Kujamulji, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It was a pleasure to talk today. And best of luck at the conference. Thank you. It was nice to meet you, too. Shanila Kujamulji is a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the forthcoming book, Forging the Ideal Educated Girl. I hope you have enjoyed this mini-series on decolonizing knowledge. For those listeners who are planning on attending the CIS Symposium this week, have a wonderful time. I'm sorry I won't be able to join you. But please do go up to the other Fresh Ed guests and say hi. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>